So I'm very excited to have Emma Carmichael on this, one of my first podcast shows, Marriott Side Trips. And uh, hello, Emma, how are you doing? I'm very well, and I'm very excited because it has been snowing in London, and it doesn't, that happens very rarely. I'm not so excited because I'm a little bit nervous of actually being in the podcast guest seat rather than the podcast host seat, but still looking forward to it. We were actually sitting down at the kitchen table at home about to start this podcast and then it started snowing and uh, Emma being Emma said we had to get out of the snow. So Mm -hmm. yeah, so that's part of the deal. So we just thought we'd um, record the intro here in the snow. And so as this is the intro, Emma is my guest, Emma Carmichael. Hello. Um, She's a... a trained surveyor. That's right. And um, in the past, uh, she has worked in London as a conservation surveyor, has worked in uh, post-war Balkans, uh, restoring uh, historic buildings, including churches and cathedrals. She has uh, subsequently been a bookseller, been an author and um, traveller, of course. She's well-travelled, which we'll learn about, I'm sure and um, now a podcaster. So yes, I'm looking forward to our conversation, which hopefully we'll record back in the warmth of um, our flat (laughs) in the kitchen with, of course, a cup of tea. Thank you. I think you wrapped up my life in one little nutshell. Welcome to Marriott Side Trips, where I, Stephen Marriott, share the stories of the fascinating people I meet along the way. I'm an author, traveller and now podcaster. After visiting more than 50 countries and engaging with cops in Colombia, rickshaw boys in Delhi, Cuba families, chefs in Marrakesh, pilgrims and many more individuals, I've come to realise that everyone has their own unique story. This is my pilot episode and to help me break my podcast virginity, my first guest is my partner, Emma Carmichael. Her life spans several careers, including more recently podcasting too. Today, amongst other things, Emma shares her experiences of working and travelling in the post-war Balkans. So we're back at the flat here in southwest London and um, returned to the kitchen, yes. which uh, we did try to get this uh, a kick off this interview with earlier, but you got all excited about the snow. We went to our local park. We did, yes. And uh, <laughs> yes, crunched with the snow, had a few snowball fights and uh, yeah, warmed up back here with some coffee. Um, and what coffee is it, Emma? Do you remember? This is a Mexican um, blend, I think. It's an organic coffee. And um, actually, it was a Christmas present, so I can't remember exactly. But it is delicious. It's, well, it's that, I'm going to pour some light, for you. but light, fruity flavour. I think it's great that, that I've set this up to, to have some coffee this afternoon and perk ourselves up. But, but also because I think it ties nicely in two ways into the fact that I know a kitchen is an important place for you. It is. And... Um, you know, you are a, a coffee barista now, aren't you? So you ground this coffee up for us. Um, and obviously, um, in your bookshop stroke cafe traveling through, you learnt the skills of coffee grinding and making a decent uh, cappuccino or latte. Uh, so I think it's just really nice to um, just tell us a bit about why kitchens are important to you and uh, yeah, what, what you know about coffee now and, and I should say for everybody out there um, um, slight um, uh, admittance here that um, people may not know that Emma is also my partner so she's uh, a little bit on the spot here and I'm going to hopefully learn a few things that I have never had the chance to ask her about <laughs> in terms of her past life and obviously some thoughts and different things which we never get the chance to talk about which are going on in her head but uh, 
uh, as I say, this is all about Emma. So over to Emma. Okay. Um, well, thanks again for inviting me on the podcast. Uh, very excited because this is a new thing for you. And to, to be at, at sort of near to the beginning of it all is, is great to, to be part of that story uh, of you developing it. Well, I'm hoping you're going to guide me a bit with this, this, this show as it's one of the earlier ones. And um, I'm still finding my feet. Um, and you did help me a bit with the technology here. And, and running, <laughs> with all uh, the wires, wires and, cables, and, and, and things like that exactly. and getting set up with the recording. So that's... That's that's a great start already. So, um, but I, yes, Emma, tell yeah, us so, about kitchens and things. Okay, so I think actually that it's also nice that we are sitting in the kitchen because the kitchen is one of the rooms in the house where I always feel the most relaxed when it comes to having conversations. And this goes right back to childhood. We always had our family powwows, discussions, chats, laughs, cries in the kitchen. So it's. For me, it's very central, and it's also, I think, a very Irish thing, which my mother, being being of Irish origin, although she was she didn't live in Ireland, she was brought up in London and and in India as well. But ki- the kitchen was always very important in her household, um, and so we just grew up always. Even if our kitchen is small, wherever I've lived in London, um, where all around the world, it's always been the kitchen has been the central point of, of uh, discussions, disclosures, um, <laughs> whatever it is, and parties. And I'm sure that's the case for a lot of people. The best parties always end up in the kitchen. I don't know whether that's the same for you, but it certainly has been the case for me. For well, me. I do know you like a bit of kitchen dancing now and I again. Do. Absolutely. And, uh, we did do a bit of that, didn't we, on New Year's Eve here in, in the kitchen when, like a lot of people, there were no parties to go to <laughs> this year. But that was great. So, yes, and... Uh, yeah, I love that fact that um, it's 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 about a sense of place and family for you by the yeah. by the sounds of things and, and food and also it's cooking yeah. where people can relax, have a cup of tea. One of us might be cooking, but you're having a chat as well. And um, and in terms of the coffee, yes, I mean the smell of coffee in in the kitchen is also uh, it just it's it's a feeling of home, isn't it? It's a feeling of whether or tea. In fact, it's, it's exactly mm-hmm. the same. And um, the coffee skills, I didn't, I drank quite a bit of coffee when I lived in the Balkans. And that's a very, very strong coffee. Mm-hmm. And then coming back to the UK in 2012, it was suddenly the coffee scene had really taken off in London. And I really Especially was very London, much aware yeah. of it. Um, and then opening the my, my bookshop and the cafe, that's when I really learnt the skills of, of uh, being a barista. Not to say that I was a very good one, but I, I learnt a lot from it. And in the ter- types of coffee, um, how you have to keep the coffee machines clean to get the best flavour, how you grind the coffee, the different grinds. So there's, it's, a, it's a huge skill. And I think a lot of people drink wonderful coffee without actually realising how much goes into creating that perfect cup of coffee. And it is quite difficult to keep consistency, um, but that comes down to how the beans are also um, not only ground, but how, they, how they're how roasted So the, from the roastery. So there's a, there's a big thing behind, behind it all. But I find that fascinating, and it's been great that, although the bookshop now doesn't exist, mm-hmm. I've kept the grinder. The coffee machine, unfortunately, was far too big <laughs> to keep, so I sold that. Um, so at least we can grind our coffee and we, we put it through a, just through a French press. But it still, it creates a lovely, a lovely coffee. So. And I have to say thank you because I've been a big beneficiary of um, <laughs> you your um, coffee experiences. So cheers to that, Emma. I'll raise my 
uh, mug here and chink yours. Obviously, you moved on for the bookshop, and I want to come back to that mm-hmm. and um, and and what t- what took you from the Balkans to the bookshop um, later in, in in the show. Um, but I, I guess um, what, what's really interesting is just to get a bit of a snippet as to what you're up to at the moment. And I know you you since at least uh, it was last April, I believe you started your own part podcast show, which is almost a sort of evolution of going online with traveling through bookshop and other things so yeah just 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 give us a, a, a brief summary of, of where you are at the moment with okay. things well from for those who don't know um, I had a bookshop in in behind Waterloo station for for five years and it was a it was an amazing experience um, financially not an amazing experience but I think many booksellers and book owners will will uh, nod and understand that that situation however it was a very rich and uh, um, experience in in so many other ways and one of those ways was the fact oh, the community really came together and I met so many local people mm-hmm. in the Waterloo SE1 area um, and they used to come in sometimes just to say hello or, or have a quick cup of tea or a coffee or came to the events in the evening and a huge spirit traveling through spirit just grew or blossomed I should say in those five years and there were were a lot of people who were regulars there were people who were literally just traveling through had come from abroad Um, and it was that real sense of mix of cultures languages people experiences um, travelers so much Kind of knitted together in the shop and this spirit was was something that i i felt uh an affinity with and felt very strongly to try and keep going even though i didn't have the physical bookshop so when i closed um many people were saying well what was i going to do next and the idea eventually is to have a place somewhere abroad which is a, a continuation of the traveling through, but in a very different guise. But obviously we've had lockdowns and coronavirus and various other things getting in the way. So in the meantime, I thought another way would be to capture people's experiences of living in London, um, the traveling through shop, insights into how they see the world and life um, through a podcast. And I've, I've initially just focused on people who came to Travelling Through and has had some kind of connection with me mm-hmm. um, and just trying to keep that, those links alive. And um, I'm delighted because in the last, I think it was last week, uh, end of last week, uh, I reached over 2,000 downloads. So I'm not a, I'm no, I'm not a Joe Rogan podcaster yet, but um, it's still lovely that it's being supported and listened to that's and the traveling through podcast which we, we will again come into i think a bit more detail exactly so later the, on and we at, at, towards the end of the show we can obviously let people know yes, how, how they yes. can they can listen to the show if they want to exactly so that that's been one of the the focuses while i've had to while i closed down because obviously i closed down the shop um well obviously but it was summer 2019 but it took almost four or five months after that uh, to the end of the year of 2019 to get all everything finalized and the accountants doing their stuff closing the closing the company with company's house selling on um coffee machines coffee (laughs) machines and all the all the rest of it so 2020 was was last year was really when uh, i took 
stock of everything and thought, right, let's do this podcast. And of course, then we've been very much restrained as to what we can do. So I've just carried on with the podcast where I can, interviewing people. Uh, I think up to date, to date, I've only done one um, via Zoom, but I think at the moment that may be what I'll have to do for the for the coming months but we'll, we'll see mm. um, and also now that I, ha- I have done almost a year as a as a doing as a podcaster I've kind of seeing the way the podcast is going and I'll be making some alterations to that going forward so it's nice that well nice but slightly strange that I'm now in the <laughs> podcasting guest seat so I now know and um, how they feel <laughs> rather than always being the hosts. And so I love the fact that um, a community spirit was was created there at Travelling mm. Through and um, and it hasn't been lost because of your podcast and it's evolving now. Yeah. And um, uh, I know that your book group, which um, which were a lot of people from the Waterloo SE1 community now, they've taken that online um, via Zoom, etc. And yes. so that, that, yeah. that continues to... to um, they continue to meet in that in that way, and hopefully they will go back to being a local community, um, you know, book group in in due course when when they can. That, but oh, sorry, you were going to no, no, no. I was going to say that's that's true. I mean, the, the fact is, the book club continued, and that was my big surprise. Is actually when the shop closed, the book club continued face to face for the for the following six months. It's oh, eight months before, in fact, the first lockdown. And then they said, well, we can't just stop. We've got to keep going. So that's why they introduced Zoom chats. And I've attended a couple of those. I mean, in terms of books as well, just what you were saying about the, the well-worn books. And mm. But it, what's so nice on for books also is not only the books that are your friends that you may read over and over again. There are also those books that are very special books that are, I don't know, in a very um, a place in the bookshelf that's harder to reach or a bit more protected that you take down now and again and they're the very special books that you almost treat with kid kid gloves or I shouldn't say that um, using animal terminology but uh, (laughs) with um, with 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 just very carefully so there's two sides and and the way the books are going and you're talking about kindles and I think a lot of books have become a lot cheaper but I think on the other side, there's a lot of books that I would rather give a book to a friend for Christmas or yes. for birthday. And that's very important. Mm. Uh, and um, I think books, the meaning behind books and the way we treat books may change in the future. They'll become almost like special gifts. I don't know. but Well, uh, yeah, I, mean, I think stories, people, we, all, we all love stories, podcasting and people's personal stories, their journeys, fictional stories. Uh, stories will never be lost, will they? It's just the way they're presented. Exactly. Um, and I still, for me, the, the physical book, and as you say, that, that, that special book on the bookshelf, which, you know, there are some books which you just return to in life for whatever reason, when you need them as a, you know, a reminder, mm-hmm. or they just take you to a place. I think there's something, that, that, that's something special when you reach for that book in that, in that sense. Talking about sort of where one is now, and I know you grew up in Edinburgh and Scotland, and um, you know you have done lots of different career things, as a, um, which we'll come on to, including living overseas in the Balkans and, and France. And now you're here at the moment in, in Southwest London doing podcasting. You've had the bookshop. Did you envisage having this kind of life when you were uh, a young girl in Scotland and growing up? Mm, good question. Um... I don't think I really knew what I was going to do with my life. 
if if truth be known. I don't think that many many people do 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 really know, do they? I think they have, I have. they have sort of daydreams and, <clears throat> and, and when I, I growing up, I very much had my head in the clouds. I ran around a lot, climbed trees, played lots, played a lot of sport. Um, I didn't. I suppose the, answer, the quick answer to that question is. No, I had no idea. <laughs> um, um, I think, and um, at one point, I I wanted to be a like a go into forestry. Okay. And my mother was so horrified at the thought that I wanted wanted to be. She just saw me as a lumberjack or something. And she said, "Absolutely no way am I going to allow my daughter to go into that. That's a ridiculous idea." So, uh, and at the time, I. I didn't really have the the strength of character, shall we say, to to uh, put my foot down and say I will do that. And um, and how old were you then? Do you think when you thought you wanted to go into forestry, which is interesting, 17. I think, outdoors and yes. nature, which I know you love nature. So I also had a, or I still do have a. Mm. My godfather was in Australia, so that was always in the back of my mind. I wanted to go to Australia to see to see him. I didn't know when that was going to be or whatever. But apart from that, yeah, I had no, I had no real idea. I think for for a couple of years, I was a bit when I was eighteen. I, I was a bit, I felt a bit trapped, but I didn't know how to get out of that trap. And I think that's all a part of you're growing up, but you don't know how you don't know how to go, you don't know how to get away from. You don't really know what the problem is at at that point. Okay. And I I was never. I was never a child that shouted and yelled at people and had a furious temper or stormed around. So how my life was going to change, I knew it was going to at some point, mm-hmm. but I wasn't quite sure how I was going to get there. So you didn't have, you know, like some people have this sort of um, idea that then they're going to meet their prince and they're going to have uh, X amount of children in this house. That that was not the sort of thing that went through your head because if it was, you know, you've messed up. You're with me now, and uh, sorry about that. Well, <laughs> well, no. I mean, I did. I, oh, you did. I, okay. Yeah, of course. I, I mean, as I did. I thought by, the, I did think by the age. I mean, I was only eighteen or seventeen at the time. So, yeah. but I thought by the time I was twenty-seven, which actually was very old, at my, I felt at that time, um, I would probably be. Uh, so, so not when you were 27 you thought you, you thought when I was you, 17 you thought by the time I thought I'd be 27 the time I was 27 okay. I'd probably be married and on the way to having about four kids okay so, the, so that, that idea so, had that, 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 oh, that yes, yeah, had yeah. gone through your head at some point yeah you it did okay yes but um life got in the way of all <laughs> yes. of that and and um and that didn't happen but no. I, I have no uh je ne regret rien as they say yes um, and no regrets because that's the course life mm-hmm. took me down. And um, not to say that at some points I thought that might happen, it could have done, but it didn't. And destiny or whatever, fate, whatever you want to call it, had other ideas for me. So, uh, so, so, um, sounds not to me that you didn't have this uh, desire. You knew you wouldn't stay in Edinburgh by the, by the sounds of things, although it sounds like quite an idyllic childhood, you know, out, outdoors, running around and, and, and things like things yeah, that. Yeah, cycling down to Cramond and I it... had a sense of, I was given a sense of freedom and, and my parents were very, um, they, they weren't controlling like that. I mean, you had to be home by a certain time, but during the day I would just say, I'm off for a cycle ride and they would never say, well, where are you going? What are you doing? Mm-hmm. I'd just go. And, and sometimes... From I'd Edinburgh? Go, 
yeah, in Edinburgh, and you yeah. just cycle off, and and because we we lived in various places in in Edinburgh, and um, yeah, we just disappear. Okay, <laughs> just go off cycling and and exploring, and I suppose maybe that's the early early days of me going off by myself and exploring. Mm-hmm. I mean, so when a, you say explore, child. sort of, I don't know, different neighbourhoods or suburbs or. Yeah, uh, you mentioned some. What was the name of the place? Cramond, down, going down yeah. to the seaside, so down to the. And is that the nearest seaside place to Edinburgh? Uh, well, it sort of goes all the way along the coast there. So because the, Edinburgh's right on the Firth of Forth, so mm-hmm. so this coastline all the way along there. So there's lots of different coves and places that you can. So go you just to. take yourself off on your bike and yeah. go for little micro adventures. I would. Yeah. Yes, okay. exactly. Um, and then obviously when you leave school, that it changed. A bit, and I had to think about what I was doing, and I had no idea, and I wasn't allowed to go and and learn forestry. So, and my mum said, "Well, you, you should go and do a secretarial course," and I did. I followed what she said. Um, in London. No, in Edinburgh. Oh, in Edinburgh. Okay, yeah. you did the secretarial yeah, course. I, I didn't did, know that. Okay. Uh, for about a year, learned how shorthand and typing, and everything. Okay. Hated every moment of it. Didn't talk to my mother for the whole year I was doing it because I blamed her for for putting. So you me didn't go on it. to do a degree then. That this was after what you called the hires, was it? In, yeah. In school. Yeah. So after your A level equivalent. Yes. Exactly. Right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, after you completed secondary school and kind of college. Yes. Effectively. Yeah. Not, exactly. Yes. Okay. Interesting. And, yeah. So it sounds like secretarial work really wasn't for you, given your reaction to your mum. I know. It. No, it wasn't. But having said that, I'm very grateful to to her that I did it because it actually gave me a whole heap of skills, like um, uh, typewriting skills of how to use um, a keyboard and how to do shorthand and how to do how to shortcut certain things uh, in in life. Actually, okay. So it was actually. Even though I hated it at the time uh, horrendously, and and I worked for a, a company in in Edinburgh for a short period of time, it was also it was a stepping stone for yeah. me to go to London and to do just contract secretarial work, um, and then eventually I joined a um, account, an accountancy firm um, in graduate recruitment. So it it was um, it was a skill, and if if anything, that's something I've I've learned that that. Sometimes the skills that you really think there can't possibly be um, any anything to come out of it. Uh, when you start to think sideways, you realise you can use skills mm. in in other ways. And it worked for me. That was that was a salutary lesson, uh, as or humbling lesson as well. That that um that actually it's it's it allowed me not only to go to London and then. Um, get a job that was paid double what I was earning in, in, in Edinburgh. But it also gave me the chance to save money and then to go travelling. And as a result of having those skills while I was travelling, I could do contract work. And so I could know I could could travel for a while, stop, work, earn some more money, save money, and then do another bet. So in, in but at the time, you know, like all I could see <laughs> was I hate doing this but even though I hated doing it in me is always a sense I want to do it to the best of my ability mm-hmm. so I still still did it well and and I was good at it but um so that's quite a it was a it was a challenging time but uh, 
but it paid off really. So I have I have no regrets about it again. And did did the <laughs> my I mean, poor mother just suffered? <laughs> my I had my hands yeah. and not wanting to talk to her. Well, I mean, obviously, it, it gave you um, you know um, administrational skills, organisational skills, and transferable skills to other jobs to travel, which um, you know. Which is which is fantastic, and which you didn't obviously know that that at the time mm-hmm. that that would would give you. But what was it like? Or maybe so you wanted to say something. Yeah, I, I just think I think probably one of the reasons also is because I had my heart set on going to college or going to university, like quite a few of my friends were doing. Yeah, and and that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But then it, it maybe just what it just as it turned out, it just wasn't the right it wasn't the right time no. because that time did come along later f- for me. Um, but on my terms and on, on something that I wanted to study and I knew yeah. I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So it, sometimes life life has a pattern that a lot of people follow. And they think, well, you go to school, then you go, you have a year out, then you go to university, then you do this, then you do that, then you get married, then you have kids, and then the cycle mm-hmm. continues. And when you interrupt that cycle, it almost puts you on a different path. And, and as a result, it makes you think very differently to, to other people around you. And I, yeah. I, that's something I suppose I've just, I've realized that, I, I, and in the end, if you want to get on that path, the same path as everybody else, you can do. But you've also been offered an opportunity to go down a, a different path. And it's how you then view that path as something that is an opportunity or as... Um, a rejection or a, um, um, so something that makes you not be accepted. Do you see mm-hmm. what I mean? You can because you're, you it makes you different, and it's then how you how you view that difference as being something to your advantage or being something uh, negative. And it's it's um, and I learned that that was something that I learned very early on, I suppose, from from. Hating my mother from putting, <laughs> putting me on the secretarial course. Well, hating is a bit strong, but I, 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 you know, I didn't talk to her for a long time. But I've obviously, <laughs> obviously, I do now, and I, yes. and I've apologised to her on many occasions for <laughs> being so horrible to her at the time because actually, it was the best thing for me, and she mm-hmm. probably knew me better than I knew myself at that point. Um, not to say that everybody needs to go and do what what I did, but mm-hmm. but sometimes. You, you actually end up not liking yourself because you feel you've been pushed down a path because you weren't strong enough mm. to stand up for yourself. But at the same time, I did go down that path. I learned a lesson and I also learned then how to, how to stand up for myself and to start to have an opinion for my, mm. my own opinions about things. But it must have been intimidating when you first came to London, um, you know, fairly young, still not 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 having been a, you know, sort of leaving home in the sense of when you're a graduate, you ease yourself into it because you're often you're with other people in the same boat, you're in halls of residence, etc. Was it an intimidating experience? Um, I don't know, arriving off the coach or bus in London. Yeah, I mean, yes, it was very intimidating because. Uh, you know, Edinburgh at that time in the in the seventies and eighties was is is not the city it is today. Okay. Um, and I was very green green between the green between the ears in many many ways. Um, and suddenly I was thrust into this into this city life, full of um, so many things, sights, smells, people, 
cultures, uh, opportunities, you don't know where to look. And, and also so many people uh, and I'm, I'm just having to stand on your own two feet and do everything for yourself. It was it was a it was it was a shock, but you know it's it didn't take long to to find it, find my feet, and I wasn't totally alone because my cousin on my mother's side, who was brought up down in England, she just moved to London, and uh, she I shared a flat with her and a couple of other people above a pawnbroker's shop. Okay, what, what, what part of London was that? <laughs> in um, it was in Fulham at the other end of the Doors Road near, okay. near Lee Road, and uh, yeah, above this pawnbroker shop, <laughs> you ran down. The floor was slanted <laughs> such that you ran down towards the the, the stove, and um, we had a our door was uh, bedroom door was was a padded studded door. We had this, we had this little radiator with one bar that heated the room so we didn't have radiators or anything and it was so Gosh. cold on, in winter, it was absolutely really, really freezing. In fact, I set fire to my dressing gown one, one night on this radiator, but it was electric one, you know, you just you plugged it in. But yeah, it was it was a start. It was all I could afford at the time, and yeah. I had to find a job and uh, just tempt for a while for a couple of months, I think, and then and then got a, a full time job with this accountancy firm for for eighteen months, and then I thought, right, got enough money, I'm out of here, and that's when the that's when I thought, right, I'm going travelling. The trees were still beckoning. The trees, the oh, the trees, trees. Yes. the the the, uh, the world was beckoning <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> beyond the trees. Yes. <laughs> So Australia is where you headed next. It was. It was. A, it was a via roundabout route. One of these trail finders round the world tickets. Okay. Very exciting. For an experience. Mm -hmm. So Australia um, and travels for twenty around twenty months, and then you you return to London. Am I right I in saying to that? London. I returned to London, and I got a job with. Um, a travel company that's, oh, that okay. that actually that actually organise events for orchestras and choirs and um, oh. big groups of people going to different parts of the world. But I did that for for three or four, maybe six months, I think, and then I realised this isn't what I want to do. And at that point, I just decided it was time to do something different. And I have this, I had this real. I had this real urge to do up houses and get involved in the cultural heritage world. Um, and I didn't know how I was going to do that. But so I phoned the National Trust up and I said, do you take on people and train them how to get involved in um, doing up old houses and buildings and stuff? And she said, no, 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 you have to go and do a building surveying degree. And I went, well, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> that didn't exist when I was at school. Uh, and uh, she said, well... Go and have a look at the universities. They'll be recruiting um, and see whether you can get on a course. Come back to us when you've finished. And that's what I did. Wow. Gosh, career beckoned. A career beckoned, yes. <laughs> so we're back in the kitchen for part two. We've got a glass of wine, so hopefully we're a bit more relaxed this evening. We are. Um, to find out more about... Um, your travels, and specifically, I'm interested in your travels around the Balkans, and uh, that's something which uh, uh, I know something 
um, about because of the book. But um, there's lots of that, that, that. The story created a lot more created a lot more questions in my mind okay. as well. So we left things that um, you decided to get a career, and you obviously became a surveyor, and that being a surveyor in London, which I know you you, you were for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the surveying qualifications and experience took you to work in post-conflict heritage development and restoration in the Balkans. Gosh, it did, by what, chance. <laughs> by chance. Well, it's, it's a bit of uh, a move. And um, I guess the Balkans conjures up different images for different people. For me, I think of um, I think Yugoslavia when neighbours used to go on holiday to Yugoslavia. But then yeah. obviously there was the war and um, you know, a lot of different mix of cultures there. Eastern Europeans, Central Europeans, and I think a very much a sort of a macho male-dominated world. And so you um, obviously left what you knew in London and in, in the career to, to go to a macho world. Is that fair to say? And how and how how did that feel? Okay, that's a very good question. It's a very big question as well. Sorry. Yes. So I think well initially, uh, I mean, becoming a building surveyor, particularly in conservation, the last place in the world I expected to end up was the Balkans. But an opportunity arose and um, at the time very naively I applied for the job there not really understanding the full extent of what I was entering into in in terms of the post-conflict situation and all that entails and how cultural heritage as a result is is very much becomes a very political um, subject too which thinking about it is you know, through World War One, World War Two, you would always, uh, you know, well, the monuments, whether churches or cathedrals or bridges, were were bombed and and, and attacked, and it, it was always always seen as attack of your cultural heritage. So, going out to this region, totally um, unaware and, and not very, um, how should I put it, uh, not familiar with mm-hmm. with um, Byzantine churches all the mosques from 14th, 15th, 16th century. That that was one side of it. Uh, but I, not only was I going into a world that's very um, macho, shall we say, but interestingly, there were a lot of women who held high, quite high positions within the ministries. Um, so I was not alone, really. And in fact, it was more surprising to see that there than, and I saw more of it there than I had done in this country, in, in the same field, shall we say. Interesting. So, although uh, initially I was very much managing um, a, a situation and a project that was with architects from, from different backgrounds and, and all male-dominated, because of the political situation, um, people, representations from different parties would change and, and then suddenly it would become... Um, half and half woman and uh, half half male half female and then at one point it was actually almost all women so it it changed so the the dynamics um, changed with that Uh, and each had their their challenges but I don't think it really I mean I was there to do a job and I took it very much from a very practical building surveying point of view (laughs) and tried to just keep politics out of it and and just try to do what I could do based on the experience I had and using the experience and the experiences of the people around me because they knew a lot more than I did. I, I mean, I, I knew the sort of European way um, of how to put 
document tenders together and, and, and get construction work underway alongside a team of people, obviously. Um, but understanding the history and the, the dynamics behind it all was, was totally new to me. So we needed each other yeah. in a way. Uh, so, I mean, obviously we had, we had many problems, but we also we had many successes, many laughs, many cries. Um, but it was a very interesting process and particularly within in the international world with with other institutions involved um, that also was another dynamic which was quite challenging at times to 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 deal with because I, I came in very specifically thinking I was doing a, a project as such and that suddenly was for the Council of Europe you're employed by with the Council of Europe yes so I was employed by by them running a project yes projects so projects yeah um and I had a, my right-hand man, um, Francisco Montañez, uh, who, if he's listening, hello, <laughs> was my right-hand man um, from Spain, a project manager. And he very much was the, the technical coordinator mm-hmm. and project manager on the ground all the time, uh, dealing very much face-to-face with, with these projects on a, on a day-to-day basis, whereas I was more of a helicopter view of managing the process, the budgets and... Um, and the architects and the, the political situation. So, I mean, it was a very intense period of my life, something that I never thought I would ever be in a position to be doing. And if somebody had told me that I would be doing that at some point in my life, I would have said, you've got the wrong person. But in fact, when you're in there, you just get on with it. And, and it was um, a huge learning curve, but a very rewarding learning curve. Um, and five, year, five years on was, was, for me, enough. It was very intense. And um, there came a point within the project where more money, we, we had got more money for another phase of, of the projects. And at that point, I decided it was time to, to sort of come out and let someone else take over from the start of this new tranche of money that had, had been, uh, that was coming from the European Commission and from, from the Kosovo government as well. Um, to, for the next phases. Can so, you give us an example of one of the projects and uh, maybe a project that was um, particularly challenging for you or one of the, the projects, one of the final projects you, you did? Um, well, we had in one of the one of the towns in Kosovo, Prizren, a beautiful old medieval um, town, had uh, a main cathedral in the centre of the town, mm-hmm. St George's Cathedral, and it was also surrounded by little uh, smaller chapels or churches so to say one was up on the hill uh, in an area that had actually been um, destroyed by fire uh, there were there was a, a village serbian village up there um, and then down in the town there was another um, smaller um, chapel there was also a hammam there as well which was part of the priority list for, for Kosovo but I wasn't involved in that specifically to do the specifications yes and then there was also archaeological sites around um, in the countryside around around Prizren and between Prizren and Pristina too. Um, so the cathedral became one of the major projects that I was engaged with and it involved a lot of people. Uh, we had Bulgarian engineer, we had um, technical team uh, from both Kosovo and from, um, from Belgrade um, and from the institutions. Uh, we had wall painting specialists coming from Greece and from Spain, um, and then we had structural engineers, and we had um, a UK engineer who came to give some advice. 
And it was a it was a full on project, and then of course we had all the contractors involved. And what was the too. restoration work? And so the how restoration had it, how had it was been damaged. I presume um, it had been damaged. It had been yes, basically it was a rebuild job. Uh, we, it had the four walls, but we had to rebuild the roof and Gosh. then the the whole of the interior. Um, so it was a it was a massive project and uh, involved. A lot of cooperation. It was also in the town. Was also it, it was the heart, a very secular town in the sense it it had um, it had the Orthodox Church there. It had the Catholic Church was there. It had the main mosque with the the, the mufti, um, and there was also a big population of of people who who were very. Um, very conscious that this was the the center. It was the center of their their city, so it was important um, for historically as well to try and pull it together again. Uh, I mean, we had problems with at the time with the lead being stolen off the roofs um, <laughs> and materials going missing, uh, payment of contractors, and and all of this. But as you do in in all in all mm. in all um, projects wherever you are in the world. Um, but eventually, we did make it a functional, a functional cathedral. There was also the main bishop's residence was there too, and that was done as a separate project, not by us, but by it was separately funded. Um, and there was also a little chapel on the on the site called uh, Runovich, I think it was called. Gosh, I'm forgetting all the names now. Um, which is a beautiful, small, um, domed chapel with their wall painted ceiling so it was it was a lot of conservation work but it also very challenging in terms of finding the right materials what do you use as well as making it a functional um, cathedral for for the future for people to use going Mm -hmm. going forward and um, I haven't been back in the last 10 years actually so I'm I would be intrigued to know how how it's going I will go go back at some at some point um yeah Maybe after the lockdown, when everything <laughs> opens up again, the world opens up and we'll all be on the move, that's for sure. <laughs> so, that, so, yes, I hope so. But so the challenge with that, well, lots of different challenges in terms of managing budget, um, theft of materials, and managing different institutions and p- politics, I guess. Yes, a lot of, a lot uh, of politics. You mentioned, obviously, you know, um, hierarchy of um, of um, religion there as well. Yes, definitely. And, and also, it's also... You know, they were still recovering from from a, a period of 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 unrest mm-hmm. um, from two thousand and four, where the the riots of two thousand and four in Kosovo, um, and and before that, the nineteen ninety nine, there was conflict. Uh, so there was a lot of there was a lot of people in uh, healing. There was a huge healing process going on, and that was another element to it all. And initially, before any of the work started. We we were very much under um, escort by by UN forces and people, you know, escorting me everywhere with with guns. And I found actually that was more frightening um, and more overwhelming than than actually the project itself. But it was it's I I'm still in this process of, of um, kind of downloading my brain of everything that I experienced and, and learned from <laughs> yes. that. So it's an ongoing thing and I, I, know. And yes. I think I will write about it all one day. Yeah. But it's some, you keep some of it's to still promising to. Yeah, some of it's still <laughs> quite raw and some of it's still very sensitive. Yeah. Um so it's um 
it, it's being able to find the words as well without mm. offending and and also writing it in a way where hopefully people can understand i mean it, a, a very difficult thing to yeah. if you haven't lived through through this yeah. um i mean i i didn't live through the war no. i came afterwards so you saw the aftermath my, i saw an aftermath which is very different to actually living through mm. through it and um one and one thing i suppose from not only working on the kosovo project but we i was working on various uh consultancy projects around around the balkans at the same time was the yeah that process of meeting so many people who were healing from uh, from and dealing with huge bereavement and loss mm. and that was very emotionally challenging at times as well and made me appreciate uh and also see bereavement from so from so many different other sides mm. to to a side that I had personally experienced bereavement, um, so that was also very very interesting and something also that I'm still processing as, as a result. Well, it's interesting as you say that you know you're, you're processing it still, and obviously I live with you, and so I know something about that stage of your life, but only when you sort of it comes out you know in snippets and or you, you, maybe you're caught off guard. But that that is interesting though because. I've always wondered with um, you then subsequently when you finished that job or, yeah. or or gave you a notice and I think it was after five years did you say mm-hmm. yes roughly yes, yeah um, that you still wanted to stay in the region and you then went on this kind of madcap adventure <laughs> um, for ten weeks I did, yes. ten countries in the Balkans um, driving around in this Zastava car which if anyone's read the book Driving Tito. They know about the Zastava car, etc. But just tell just tell us about what a Zastava is. Okay, well. Um, and why did you want to jump into this yeah. car and go on the Balkans after all, the, all this other work? I some people just want to get away if they w- wanted to process things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now I think um, I saw the car around the the Balkans all the time I was out there working. And I heard that it was this Zastava, and it's this tiniest of cars. And they used to say that this is the car that, that everyone had a story to tell. That either they learned to drive in it, or their grandfather had one, or they they grew up with them in, in the family. And so, in terms of a, a vehicle or a, or an object as mm-hmm. such, you mentioned this vehicle, and everybody had a smile on their face, and everyone had a story to tell. Um, and so when I thought, wow, this is just just incredible, I just was kind of kind of fell in love with a car. I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to drive one around? Um, a bit like a mini, I, and I suppose it would be very easy to to actually find a to to get a vehicle. Mm. But actually, that process was was quite hard. Wasn't it the equivalent of a cinquecento? A bit. It, it is. It's not. like a cinquecento. Yes. So it's like the Italian cinquecento and the Zastava. The Zastava. Um, it was a factory in in um, in Serbia that made these vehicles. So they took the design and adapted it for the Yugoslavian market, okay. really. And the initial ones had doors that opened sort of outwards, a bit like the um, like a Ferrari, but mm-hmm. it was. <laughs> <No. laughs> but in fact, there's, there, of, there is uh, a Ferrari. film. There is a film which I've actually forgot the title of now, where they used to, which is involves these cars in in races. And it was, there is a um, a classic 
Yugoslav film with with disaster in it. And I, okay. I, I, it's it's the names escape me at the moment. Mm. Anyway, um, but uh, which surprises this, me, given the amount of times you break down in the book. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, well, precisely because yeah. at that time I thought it'd be no problem, and and I when I test drove a few of them, I realised actually this this uh, journey might not be as easy as I, I at first thought it would be. But I eventually found a, found a car after uh, after several searches and um, set off in this vehicle. And one of my colleagues, um, he had a, apparently I found this out afterwards had a bet with his mates uh, a, a, a crate of beer. Um, <laughs> they bet that I would that there was no way that I would make it. So he was all the way encouraged me. Come on, you've got to keep going. <laughs> well, I think that's so, one of the the, the, the the early parts of the book where all your colleagues were just flabbergasted, it seems, that you wanted to do it. Even the lady who, um, your colleague who you had to get, the, who had to buy the car on your behalf because you weren't uh, a national. That's um, right. And permanently <laughs> resident there, or something like that. And so she had to buy it and then you kind of, she you did. know, then she lent it to you effectively. Exactly. We had uh, to do the paperwork. But, but she just seemed sort of... Um, very perplexed and just sort of nonchalant um, <laughs> um, that you know that you would not do this and why would you want to do it and you know was there something in the book this or something they can't even go up hills she said so what would you know she just didn't get that you wanted this sort of um, nostalgic vehicle which I guess mm, represented mm. Um, the Balkans and Yugos, former Yugoslavia to you yes yes I mean now I've seen that I've actually uh, there's a, a Zastava old timers club on in on Instagram and um, so, so whether they've now become, I don't know whether they're restoring more of them now, but at, p- at one point they were actually encouraging people to return them to the factory and they were being, um, I think, broken down and, mm-hmm. and just for scrap. Uh, but yeah, where my car is now, I don't know. I hope it's still, I hope it's still in Macedonia in the field. I left it with uh, the lady who actually has the, the, the official ownership. As you say, I couldn't own it because I wasn't. Uh, a resident mm-hmm. in in um, in Macedonia at, um, at the time, well, not now either, but all working there. But I was able to. I had a, a three. I think it was three months, um, sort of certification, so I could just go and drive it. So I knew I then it would have to be would had to come back for um, a bit like an MOT and and tax renewal. Okay. So I knew I had you know, quite a few few um, few months ahead of me, but I think at the time when I set off, I I left Skopje, which is the capital of of um, Macedonia, or the Republic of Macedonia as it is now, um, or oh, Republic of, yeah, I think it has changed its name recently, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was going up this hill and I was getting slower and slower and slower and then the lights started blinking and I was thinking, oh my God, but I'm about to, I'm going to break down already and I haven't, <laughs> been, I haven't been away even half a day. <laughs> it's only been an hour into the journey. And I realised that I had totally misread the um, petrol gauge. I thought it was full, but it actually was running on empty. So I had, I, I the first thing I had to do was try and find a, a petrol station to... <laughs> To, to fill it up and then of course I don't speak the language or not well enough to, to have mm-hmm. a to have a proper conversation but people helped me out everywhere I went and they just um yeah I did break down twice on en route um 
but each time you just... broke down more times than that i broke down a number broke... of times yeah i broke down in greece <laughs> and then i broke down again in in bulgaria uh, and that one was quite a catastrophic catastrophic um, uh, breakdown and i ended up staying in this village or t- yeah this small town samakov for about three or four days while it was fixed and the parts had to come from I don't know how they found the parts, but they did. <laughs> um, and and then I, I managed to get all the way to to northern Serbia to um, to uh, what's the place called? Um, Got the gone. book here if you yes. want to, if you want to have a quick oh, look. Yeah, is it called? You've got your map at the front. Yeah, it begins with G. Do you need the glasses? It's yeah. Thank you. And the map five major. Incidents, and I remember. I think I read even more more than that. That you. That you, that you <laughs> well, I was, I was going to come on to ask, ask you a couple of questions related to the, yeah, the breakdowns and, okay, and these so, little sort of village garages. So I well, I was crossing between um, Romania into into Serbia and um, towards Subotica, basically. Um, what's it called? Anyway, and this little this this um, the the guard at the at, at the at the border came flying out of his hut. There was no one around at all. It was boiling hot. This is the other thing. I, I set off on this journey in August and it was like 35 <laughs> degrees, 40. It was stinkingly hot. And literally I was just sweltered. I mean, the only, only air conditioning was through the, was the windows. I had to have the windows <laughs> down. It was absolutely baking. And um, anyway, I arrived at this this little border crossing between Romania and, and Serbia. And this guy... Just he just like flew out of his hut, going, "It's a miracle! It's a miracle!" <laughs> he couldn't believe that a Zastava with a Macedonian number plate had managed to reach his uh, reach as far north as <laughs> as his little um, border control crossing. So there I was, more concerned at that point about um, whether I'd be allowed in because I had been doing all this work in Kosovo, and there was a lot of at the time. Um, political unrest between Kosovo and Serbia and every border crossing that I did between, over the, over into onto the Serbian side was an absolute nightmare. So I was and a bit terrified. Plus your paperwork was a bit dodgy as well, given you didn't own the vehicle, I think. Well, take, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But, but the fact that I was so far north, he, he was more interested in the Zastavan. Great. And it wow. was just, that was, I realised then I had totally, I, I was totally un, unhooked from the whole international environment mm-hmm. and that work environment. And I was just a traveler and a tourist. Yes. So it, it, that was great. That made me relax. And I and in Serbia, there was so many Zastavas. Uh, I felt like I'd come home to the land of Zastavas <laughs> as I traveled through. So through did, you feel, did, did you feel a bit more anonymous then in, in that car as opposed to a, a Western person doing, coming in to tell people how to restore his, the historical buildings when you're working for the European Council? Yeah, was that... that's what I... Th- that's what I thought I would feel, mm-hmm. but in fact the opposite was true because the the number plate gave me gave the car away that I was oh. far from home. Okay, yes. And then so so people would look in and they couldn't believe that this car was on the road, <laughs> and so then because they saw the car, then they would see me and they go, "What are you doing?" What was the? How old was the car? Sorry. It was thirty-one years old. Okay. Yeah. So Gosh. vintage. Yes, it was a classic car, and and honestly, so at some points, like going uphill, I could only do about twenty kilometers an hour, <laughs> and and I'd have to stop regularly because it would overheat. 
So the engine was at the back, a bit like in a, in a Beetle. And uh, so I'd have to stop the car, put a brick behind the back wheels because the, <laughs> the brakes weren't that good and throw the back of the um, the back door of the, the engine door the, and, and like let, it, let it basically cool down. Mm. Uh, so uh, there are quite a lot of mountains <laughs> in yes. the Balkans because it's the whole, uh, which is the Balkans, is all about the, the high mountains basically. So so there was a lot of mountain and climbing and, and in the end because it it became an issue, I actually had to start re- thinking my route around the Balkans to try and avoid <laughs> the steepest parts right. because I knew I, I might not, the car might not survive otherwise. So I started to, as the further I, the further I got, the more I, re, I realised how fragile the car was and I had to be um, uh, very, uh, very aware of its, its limitations, shall we say. <laughs> Gosh, so, so here you are then, a solo female traveller in what I was insinuating, at least my image, is, a, is, a, is sort of quite a male world. It, as you're suggesting, maybe not in institutions it's not so male-dominated, but you know, you're going through the back, back roads, towns and villages, not, a, not to a lot of the big main cities. Yeah. It was more rural. Was it more traditional in that sense? And what was it like? Um, I'll have a feel for that in the book, but mm-hmm. you um, you rock up at some hotels, restaurants, and uh, I think there were times when you were just the only woman, it seemed, or, or person, at least person on their own, eating in the restaurant and not speaking their language. And you know, you're you're brave, you're brave. Well, and did you did you feel intimidated, or did you feel like you had to push yourself at the time? And if so, what what made you keep going? On you know, was it just because you secretly knew that your colleagues did have a better bet that you wouldn't make it? No, I mean I didn't know that I didn't know at the time that they, <laughs> they had a bet. That's for sure. But I I think you know initially I was so concerned about the car and so excited to be on the road. Yeah. I didn't think about it too much. I I was I was very aware at certain places at cafes it's very male dominated and I knew that anyway. So I got used to going into these places. And yes, it was always a bit nerve-wracking going in as the only woman because obviously you're, you're a novelty and, and you've got this car. Um, but I always used to try and get a table near the back of the room or in a corner or a place and I have my maps with me and, my, <laughs> and a book because the other problem was, especially in smaller places, that I couldn't communicate with people. And that that was something actually at the start I thought, should I should I have really gone with somebody to have a translator to help with the communication? Presumably you must have had a translator sometimes when you were doing these projects. All the time. Yeah. Right. We, we, I you know, it's in, in imperative because yeah. because um dealing with locals and different institutions. Different people. Yes, yeah. exactly. I mean a lot a lot of people did speak English, but um many didn't also. Right. And also I didn't speak enough, well, hardly any of the, the of of um, Albanian or Serbian or, or Croatian or whatever, mm-hmm. um, to be able to yeah. to speak to them eloquently, um, ab- apart from saying hello, good morning, thank you, <laughs> goodbye, good day. But yes, on the road, it, so, so it was a similar thing that there was no way to communicate with people and unless they spoke a bit of German or a bit of French, in which case I could get by with that. Um, and then obviously some people did speak English. But the further inland I went, the less I would come across that. Mm-hmm. So it was very much sign language and smiling and pointing. And uh, and um, in one village, 
the woman was was just she was so frustrated so frustrated because she couldn't work out what I was trying to say that we went to the local tourist office and uh, she went on the computer and we did, we we talked to each other through Google <laughs> through a Google <laughs> translation fantastic. which um, and all I really wanted was something to eat you see <laughs> she couldn't work out what I was trying to she wanted to know specifically and I couldn't describe that so that was that was quite fun um, but no I think. At times, at times it was a bit intimidating, and and I was very careful. I was very aware of being a single woman, or solo traveller, as it were. And a lot of time, although I had a mobile phone with me, there was no there was no signal. So I was very much, you know, nobody would nobody yes. knew where I was. So in some ways, it was it was intrepid, in some ways. Um, exhilarating in others a bit freaky and scary yeah. at times but generally speaking it was just it was great it was liberating and it just gave me an insight into a, um, a world that mm. I hadn't been able to experience while I had been working in an in uh, with an international mm. hat on shall we say the council a council of Europe hat mm. on my head because it just didn't give me that opportunity um, although Although I did meet some lovely people in in Kosovo, local people that we ate well and and but you were still you were there playing you were in a role and yes. and there were certain things expected of you. Whereas take once I had sort of taken that cloak off, I could be I could I was just Emma and I could just a traveller. I was just a traveller yeah. and uh, and that opened different op- opened up other opportunities mm. and. I think it was a very hum- humbling experience as well because you realise how many people, particularly inland, um, they don't have much, but what they do have, they are so happy to share with you, um, whether it's a coffee or plums off the tree or a- an apple or just a smile and a and a, a a wave or whatever it is it was enough to keep me very much motivated in my journey and discovery of of that the whole landscape and, and world so did you see the people of the balkans differently than what you saw them before when you were working um and i appreciate I suppose... obviously there's different nationalities yeah, and, yes. and different countries i mean i think it it, it is different i mean it's because i I saw people. I saw their kindness um, while I was working. Of course, of course, I did. Um, but I saw it was a different kind of intensity because there was so much pressure on on the work, and it was so political, and everybody had an agenda, mm-hmm. um, a, a way beyond you know the, the role that I could play. So, but it was still so. So it was good to have experienced that and understand the pressure that people were under there too. But, but also to get as far away from that as possible and to understand the con- the context of the Balkans in a in a, a much wider way and the history behind it because it's the history is fascinating and I think it's also for me I found it very frustrating because I felt the more I the more I understood or thought I understood the more I realized I understood nothing mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, it is a very very complicated yeah. world and fascinating and it gets under your skin um but there's something very compelling about it too that that 
is very uh, is very heartwarming and the and the people in the community particularly in in the smaller places and in the villages and the towns are just they're just beautiful people they're just beautiful in the sense of their the way they are and how comfortable they are within where they are i mm-hmm. mean obviously there's other places that are war torn and it's a disaster and it's 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 a very very sad to see and i'm hoping you know i did this journey in 2009 so already it's 10 11 coming up for for mm-hmm. 12 12 years mm-hmm. um and i'm hoping in that time that a lot will have changed in many of those areas but i don't really know i mean obviously it, life goes on and my <laughs> i've done lots of other things since and that, and i'm sure some of them have too but that that's also again is the humbling thing is as it, me with a with a born in this country in, in this country rather than there i could go i could work i could leave some people could never leave yeah. they had no they had no ticket out and and that's that is that's humbling and also makes you realize how privileged many of us are that um, and to respect the privilege that we mm. have and hopefully use it mm. wisely maybe though as you suggest some of the simpler life might be the better life uh, sometimes I, it is i think you say a smile the lot you know a lot of smiles you suggested but you know then you came across yes yeah and people and, 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 and skills the, yeah. people had okay. in, in just uh, whether it's in gardening carpet making uh, the whole uh, the whole being of, ingenious and fixing Zastaver exactly thirty-year-old uh, uh, vehicles, and they arrive in their l- yes. little um, one town, which has got a little mechanic or whatever. Because you know, there's a number of stories there, and Definitely. they were they were ingenious. Yeah, they were ingenious to be, with finding alternative parts and fixing it. Or sometimes the male bravado of actually thinking they knew how to fix the vehicle, and they didn't. Well, exactly. <laughs> I know that certainly went on a bit. Uh, but also, there was one one person, uh, a guy who actually. I met in Belgrade, he had worked partially, he was a wall paintings expert, and he said, you know, Emma, it doesn't matter where you are. He was a what expert? He was a wall paintings specialist. Okay, uh, so you had a connection with him, or you knew him from before? Knew of him before. So where I could, I did actually try to catch up with people in different places. I met up with people in in Serbia and Croatia, Mm -hmm. in in, um, Macedonia, obviously, Bulgaria too. Um, Yeah, in fact, I don't want to, I can't remember. Anyway, yeah, he said, Emma... It doesn't matter where you are with a Zastava. If you break down, you have no worries because you can fix this car with a teaspoon. <laughs> and so, and, I love and this that. Was, so, so I felt kind of like, I think I felt comforted by that statement. <laughs> but um, I, I would have preferred not to have broken down. But I think my last, my, my final breakdown was almost the penultimate day of my trip where the brakes failed after I'd just come through uh, a very very steep pass, mountain pass, and I was coming back down into Scoffier, and I realised I I I got away with my life there definitely. Um, anyway, I'm here to Actually, tell that, the tale. <laughs> you are indeed, uh, thankfully. But that, that's yeah, that that leads me on to sort of a bigger bigger broader question about getting getting surviving something like that. Do you think you're a better or a different person because of your time um, and your experiences in the Balkans? 
Oh, I think uh, I think that question about whether I'm better, I, <laughs> I'm better at what I don't know, but but certainly. Or if you um, know better, or you've got a better understanding about life, maybe. Um, or you're just different. I think the core of me is still the same. I I think it gave me. Um, I think it gave me an, an opportunity to find out a bit more about what I could and couldn't do. I was put into a lot of situations. Um, very challenging situations uh, mentally and um, that I had to overcome very quickly on the spot. Okay. Um, and that was, you do it. And you, I think also I, 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 was, I was absorbing a lot of information and a lot about people's lives, a lot about the war, a lot about politics and it, it was it was this I almost felt like I was this kind of bubbling cauldron and everything was being thrown in it was all being melted down in, in there this is why I say I'm still kind of um, processing it all because people a lot of people told me things that they didn't want anybody else to know about mm -hmm. whether that right. was true or not whether they did tell lots of other people but mm -hmm. when people say that to me I don't pass it on mm -hmm. you know? and so in some ways, it was also very difficult to to pigeonhole certain information. Some some things, some stories have mm -hmm. stayed with me and haunted me a little bit. Um, you know, I had I had some difficult moments um, in in while working there, and um, I think not growing up with guns and war um, and the terror around it. Even though I wasn't in it, I was still quite frightened by it underneath yeah. it all, I think. Yeah. So initially when I came back, I, on the first time, I ha actually had, I had nightmares for about two months afterwards. And oh, she never told me that before. Yeah, I had a, so that was, and I think that was my, my brain processing. I used to mm. these horrendous headaches too. Mm. But... But that all passed, and yes. then I then I went back for a second stint, and, <laughs> and I think maybe so. I, I processed quite a bit then too, and I think it, it taught me a lot about institutions as well, and okay. the UN, and 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 how systems work, um, and about the larger community, and how how to how to work with people from all different parts of the world, all speaking. A kind of English but everybody has their own type of English hmm. and how you find a way where everybody can understand one another without everyone getting upset by one's um, idiosyncrasies uh, and that was that was really interesting to hmm. to uh, work with as as well as um, adapt to I suppose is, is the way um, so yeah I think I'm I think Coming back and setting up a bookshop, and um, I wanted it to be something about community as mm -hmm. well, because I just appreciated too how much community was here in London that I hadn't really realised was here. I was in, I was so caught up in my own little conservation building surveying world in in London, which is um, very small really compared to the bigger picture. Which London is, and I my my little bookshop. It wasn't the biggest bookshop and cafe in the world, but it welcome it was there. The doors were open to welcome 
anyone and everyone mm-hmm. from, from wherever they were, yes. from all parts of the world. And, and I, I loved that. that. That was a wonderful experience. And I think... Yeah, there was no... I, yeah, anybody was welcome. You, you felt that, that there, there was no sort of, um, I don't know, for lack of a better term, eliteness. It was just, there were books in there for everyone. Yes. Um, yeah. And obviously there was a focus on people and place and the, the bar was a, and cafe was a place to meet. But I think anyone felt comfortable in there, whoever, whoever they were. I think the author and Claire, thank you yeah. for saying that. Yeah. I think that was that was well, the aim, and I don't. Think I, stay, I, would... I hung about for. <laughs> you did hang so about. So I must have felt comfortable there. <laughs> I, I think also it just it was more a case that it was also a case that if I hadn't had the experience I'd had in in the Balkans, I probably would have been more reserved mm. and less. Um, how can, how can I say this? Less. I felt it was my it was my place, and everyone was welcome, mm-hmm. and it, it, we had an ethos and, an, and and that was down to the staff that that was at traveling through too. They were all wonderful people, and they came from different parts of the world, from is Italian, Mexican, French, British, um, American, American. Um, and and people and then the, the, the customers were from yes. all, all over well, the there world. There were Londoners, but, so they're from everywhere. Yeah, Londoners, Including but London. also people, also <laughs> travellers. So, um, and from that from that point of view, it was it was open to 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 everyone. And yeah, I think it was a very rewarding experience, and mm. I'm so glad I did it because it was it was a dream that I'd had for for many many years that had it, that had gone from just being a bookshop in the traditional sense to something um a lot a lot more and um yeah spirit so, lives on yes <laughs> it was like an adventure even though we know each other you know so well that we, we have been having today just just uh, delving back into your life and uh, you know i've definitely learned some things which i didn't know about you but is there anything which um, i didn't ask you or you wanted to you wanted to say or you just wanted to get out a few frustrations about me now in in front of everybody whilst you've got <laughs> the opportunity, <laughs> no, <laughs> which I I'll think... never live down. You know, now now's the moment. Well, I would never go public. I never do my never do my dirty washing in public. <laughs> oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm a private person. Uh, really. Yes, you are. Secret's <laughs> good with you. I think no. I think I've enjoyed talking about this. There's so much more to say. I hope it's interesting to people to read and uh, to to listen to and. Um, yeah, if they're interested in in um, in having a look at the book, it's called Driving Tito. Have it here. What it's called? What your book? Through the Balkan backroads with a celebrity. How did you forget? We had a, an afternoon in a London pub brainstorming. We did the name. the title exactly. Yeah, remember where, where the we coal were? hole on the, the strand. Coal hole, that's right. Yes, uh, drinking well, a couple well, of pints of Guinness, I believe, when I we were yeah were. we were going over that title. But, so um, and that where where is the book available, Emma? Uh, online, you can find it at on my website travellingthrough.co.uk. It'll have the links links to there, or you can um, buy it through a bookshop. Through all the usual outlets. Through so the usual walk, outlets. Order, you can order it online for Waterstones then, and, um, and in the states, Barnes and Noble is it I, available? Uh, I believe it is Barnes yeah. and Noble and it, Amazon, obviously. We'll as well. other, yeah. It's also in Kindle version. Yeah. Um, so and Apple Books and all the other. Other every every kind of um, variety pack of 
<laughs> style you can it's find. It's out there. There's no escape. It is out there, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, I suppose just going forward, obviously this is this is a difficult time uh, for everybody, but the podcast is kind of something, a, a work in progress too, and it's called The Travelling Through Podcast. And the idea eventually is hopefully that we'll find somewhere that, that will we'll have a bit of a space that will be... Uh, carry on that traveling through spirit that we had in in um in lower marsh and in waterloo um for people to come in se1 that's right for people to come on a retreat or to to camp or to pick a book off the shelf pick a book off the shelf who knows but when we Mm. certainly when we find this place um it will you you will you will know all about it because we'll be we'll be talking about the podcast just remind us of the name and the best places to 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 listen to to access the podcast so it's called the traveling through podcast and again you can find the links through the web my website travelingthrough.co.uk um it's traveling with two l's two l oh yeah traveling with two l's and through spelt the english way t-h-r-o-u-g-h dot co dot uk um uh, uh, sorry, I forgot now. Oh, yes. So you can find the podcast is on Apple Podcasts. It's on Google Play. It's on Stitcher. It's on um, a, a lot of the mediums. But you can you can access them through through the website too. Yeah. So um, and also I've got a newsletter. So if you want to sign up to the newsletter to find out more about what's going on, you can find the links to that via my website also. So all I've got all all points covered. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I mean, maybe a little drum roll to say thank you, Emma Carmichael. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure talking to you here on this podcast. And good luck with your podcast. Thank you. Yes, it's been a great introduction. Helping me, uh, yes, suffer through it. (laughs) All right. Take care. See you later. Bye. Bye. Phew. Thanks for making it to the end of my pilot podcast show, Marriott Side Trips. More from our conversation can be found in the show notes, including links to Emma's website, Travelling Through, and a book, Driving Tito. Just jump over to my website, marriottsidetrips.com, and feel free to contact me. I'd love to hear from you. The music was produced by Julius H., and if you like the show, please tell your friends, subscribe, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or of course, your favourite streaming service. Cheers for now, and please join me again for another of my side trips.